What's happening, everyone? Welcome into another edition of The Mental Game. I'm Sam Brief with a really unique episode today. That whether you're an animal person or not, whether you're a wilderness person or not, I think you are going to love this. Because it's something totally unheard of for a lot of you. I experienced it once on a family trip to Alaska, but I'm bringing on one of the best dog mushers in the world. He's a champion of the Iditarod and of the Yukon Quest, one of just six people ever to win both races, which are days-long, weeks-long adventures. It's Brent Sass, who has embraced this lifestyle, lives in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. He tells me 24-7 365, this is what he does. He's always training. His mental game affects his dog's mental game. And his dog's mental game gets back to his mental game. I bet you never thought I would have someone on the podcast who's talking about the mental game of an animal. But these are athletes. These are athletes that he's bonded with. And he's like a player, coach, general manager, and owner of everything he does. This is a fascinating episode that I think is going to blow your mind in a lot of ways. So I'm going to shut up sooner rather than later and bring on Brent Sass. But just a little more about him. He was born in Minnesota and after 18 years living in the Midwest, moved to Alaska where he went to the University of Alaska at Fairbanks and then quickly embraced the lifestyle of mushing. So Brent Sass, he comes onto the mental game for the first time, and I think I'm going to do like a whole series with him. So get ready, strap in for the mental game with Brent Sass. And it's my joy to welcome Brent Sass onto the mental game podcast. What's up, Brent? How's it going? Glad to be here today. It's going very well. Really glad to have you on, joining from many, many miles away. And Brent, I want to start in the present moment with you. Tell me where you are and what you're up to this week. Okay. Well, I'm at my homestead here in Eureka, Alaska, which is about 150 miles northwest of Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, I live out here with uh, 50 of my sled dogs. And today, uh, right now, I'm sitting in my shop and uh, just in between projects and chores uh, with the dogs and, and in the homestead. So just uh, an average day, which is very unaverage, I guess. I'm coming to you from Chicago, and most of my audience here is very familiar with baseball, basketball, football, right? The, the, the kind of more city urban lifestyle. You are one of the greatest dog mushers in America right now. But to many people here that might be like, okay, what is that? So explain yeah. to me what you do. So I'm a professional dog musher. Um, I uh, raise, breed, and train um, Alaskan Huskies um, and train them to run 1,000-mile mid-dits and two and 300-mile sled dog races. Um, it's like having a professional. I like own a, an NFL team, basically. I manage. I'm the manager, the owner the main coach, the head coach, and all the coaches, basically. And and um, I manage a, a team or have a team of anywhere from 40 to 50 dogs at any given time. And uh, just like any professional team, I'm raising the dogs from their puppies. And so I have, like, my minor leaguers that are my yearlings and young dogs. And all of those same relations is how you bring up a professional team. I'm doing it with just with dogs. And I'm actually breeding them, choosing the genetics 
and bringing the dogs together that I want to create to, to make up my team. Um, so I'm starting from ground zero with it. And um, yeah, I've been doing it for almost 20 years now. And um, uh, we've had some success. I've won three Yukon quests and one I did her out in 2022. And, um, and it's a lifestyle. It's, you know, it's not something I go home and, and, and put it away every night and get up in the morning and start again. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year that I'm taking care of the dogs and breeding and training them and getting them ready for races. 24, seven, 365, right? You can't put it away. You cannot, it's not a laptop. It's a dog. It's 50 dogs, right? It's a whole minor league farm system and major leagues exactly. of dogs. You can't close it, put in your backpack, watch Netflix, and say, all right, I'm moving on. Why yep. did you choose this lifestyle? Because I know it's something that's been brewing since you were, correct me if I'm wrong, five years old. Yeah, you know, I had a lifelong dream of coming to Alaska. That was the thing that sparked it early at five from my grandparents. And then when I got to Alaska in 98, um, it was a dream come true and I didn't know where this was going to take me. I just was here for the big mountains and the, the vast. And, uh, shortly after I, I saw a dog team go by, uh, I was out on the ski trails and a light bulb went off in my head and I just said, I want to do that. And it was, you know, totally out of the blue. And I just went and basically went on a mission to try and uh, figure out more about dog mushing and more about Alaska. And I was in the early years of just exploring and going on trips. And and I had a real love for the outdoors, but it just blossomed when I came to Alaska. And sled dogs happened to be the avenue that just kind of I ended up going down. And I spent the last 20 years raising and training and making this career. So, yeah, it's been a heck of a a ride and um, uh, one that I I could never even have imagined um, as a kid growing up in Minnesota. Yeah, it's funny to me that you and I are both Midwestern boys at heart. You're Minnesota yep. born and raised. For me, it's Chicago born and raised. It's one thing to go into Alaska. It's another thing to plunge into this 24-7, 365 lifestyle and become a multi-time champion dog musher. So the seeds of Alaska were first planted at five. Explain yep. to me why the dog mushing part of it became your dream. Yeah. So once I was in Alaska for a long time, or you know, for like three or four years, I was going to the university. I was getting out on foot and bike and skis and, and really enjoying it. But when I saw that dog team go by, the dogs I saw as an opportunity to be able to travel farther out into the wilderness, get further where I wanted to go, where I had this real urge to get into the wilderness. You know, the, the dream when I was a kid was a, a little cabin in the woods, you know. And so that was sort of brewing back there. And I saw the dogs as a, as a way to do that. And not only a way to do that, but just my competitive atmosphere. I, I skied at the university for a couple of years, so I had that competitiveness in me. I played sports growing up, you know, and, but it was never really um, excelled at any of those. I did the basketball and baseball. I was, you know, I enjoyed that stuff, but I never really was the best at any of that, you know. And so as soon as I saw the dogs, like this, a light bulb went off in my head. And luckily, I was able to get t- in touch with the, the right people. And I got the started with some good dogs and got in, you know, got mentored by um, I did a rod champions. And and it just nurtured every year. I got more and more engulfed. I got five dogs and eight dogs and 10 dogs and 15 dogs. And then my parents thought I was completely crazy because I was, you know, calling them every day or every week saying I got a couple more dogs. And and then once I was in it for a while, I just knew that, like, wow, I really thoroughly enjoy this. And it was that bond and connection that I could see that you had to build with the dogs in order to 
be successful to 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 be to get all that you could out of your dogs you had to nurture that relationship and um that was something that really caught my eye early and then on top of that they got me further and further out into the wilderness and back that competitive side of things so i was able to get down into the racing and um i mean it's yeah there's endless stories about how i got to where i'm going but it was really the love for wilderness that was the main the main thing and then the love for dogs I share the love of dogs with you, by the way. But the love of wilderness, you're telling me, is the headline. That's unique, that you had a love of wilderness and wanting to go far out there. And you said, okay, this is my way to get as far out there, into the woods, into the abyss as possible. Why? Why did that get you going? Uh, I think I had it. You know, I grew up... um my my parents were were amazing parents and and they instilled a good work ethic in me and a drive to like be your best do all you can do and uh, i just sort of as soon as i get focused on something in my adult life i was just had that same mentality and i started throwing that same thing and you know the thing was always find your passion and you know and i was when i went to alaska i didn't know my passion was alaska UAF, the school thing, was just something that was going to get me there. I didn't find a passion in studying. I didn't find the passion in any of that. But something went off when I saw that dog team, and then that combination of wilderness and dog team created this immense passion in me that drove me to just drive for more and more and more. What that passion feel like? I mean, it was just uh, – it was easy. You know, it was easy and hard at the same time because I knew – like, I, I mean, early on when I started mushing, it was just recreationally. I never didn't have any desire to race. It was just about, but then that bond and connection, I think that's what really was something I did not know was going to be there once I started getting into it because, um, it, you know, you start bonding with these dogs and it creates this relationship that then you are relying on them as much as I'm relying on my own skills. And then I learned that I'm going to spend my their entire life teaching them these skills. And then what I didn't realize is how much they would teach me about myself, about life, about everything along the way. And it really completely changed me uh, as a person and my entire outlook on everything. You know, and I think that's what brought me more to the wilderness. That's what brought me farther, closer to the wilderness and closer to, you know, being better friends with dogs than I am with, with more, most humans. <laughs> that is so cool. The dogs teaching you a lot as you get further into the wilderness. Tell me about that. What are they teaching you? Well, I mean, their immense love for what they do is what then sparked that love and immense uh, attraction to what we were doing and it just fueled that fire they love to run they are born bred and raised to do it you know like that's what they want to do and that's one thing that people don't really understand you look at sled dogs and a lot of people feel it's inhumane or it's just absurd and those are just you know people who are uninformed people because these dogs love what they do and so you feed off of that that energy all the time and then you get into these situations in the racing when you're put in very tense situations whether it's a bad storm whether you're competing against a really high uh you know a top-notch competitor and you're deep into these races and you're dealing with sleep deprivation you're dealing with all the challenges that come along with this race you're then relying on that bond and trust and loyalty that you've built in all those years of training from the time that they're coming out of their mom and I'm holding them in my hand to the time that they're teenagers and running around driving me crazy. 
you know, because I can't, you know, you, they're just, you're like kids and they're teenagers. They have minds of their own and you're, you can never let your guard down. And so you're using the, your entire life to get them prepared to run these races. And then you get ultimately challenged and all of the work that you did throughout their life gets put to the challenge throughout those races. And that part of it for me is what made me addicted to racing was that I can build this relationship with these dogs, not only individually, but the relationship with the whole team, because you can't, there's no individual, there's no one in dog mushing. I need those 14 dogs that are ahead of me as much as they need each other and as much as I need them and they need me. So we're a team. And so you learn so much about building team bonds and team relationships and team communication. And all of that goes into the dogs, just like it would into a team in, in the human realm. So that part of it really attracted me. And then, you know, early on in the career, I just said, I want to be the best at this. I mean, I was a young 20 seven-year-old guy who had run two you know long distance races and said i'm gonna win the yukon quest and i'm gonna win the iditarod before i'm done with this you know and that then drove me for the last 15 years to, to get to that point and now you're one of six all time to have won both the yukon and the iditarod you say you're addicted yep. to it and that addiction yep. has bred this lifestyle and it's paid off in a big way now yep. Brent, I'd love if you could explain for someone who might not know exactly what entails the Iditarod race, for example. Yep. Can you brief us up? How long is it? What are you doing yep. out there? What does it feel like out there? Because this is not a marathon. This is a marathon times 15. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, so the prep starts, I mean, like I said, it's a 365-day-a-year a deal, and so you're kind of always thinking about the Iditarod. You're always thinking about the Yukon Quest. You're always thinking about these races and what the moves you're making, the breedings you're choosing to do, and I'm building a team for, you know, in my head when I'm breeding this dog, I'm building the team for three years from now. And so you're always thinking about what you're doing. And then when that team comes to fruition, then on the individual season, you know, you're, you're basically training the dogs, They're just like a marathon runner today, dogs would be prepared. And I put up to four to 5,000 miles in training miles on the dogs uh, before we get to the Iditarod. And the race is a thousand miles. It goes across the whole entire state of Alaska. And it starts down in Anchorage, down in, in Willow is the official start. And it goes across to the Western coast on no in Nome traveling over mountain passes on the Yukon River for hundreds of miles, totally remote, desolate areas where there's nobody else out there, really. You go into native villages, that's your only sort of outpost, and those villages are checkpoints along the way. You can never carry all the gear and supplies that you have to have for that full thousand miles. So before the race, the, the planning starts early on where you pack food drops for each one of those checkpoints along the way. And I did it, there's about 23, a little bit more or less each year. The, the route changes a little bit. And um, you pack all those food drops, so you're sort of preemptively thinking about what you and your dogs might need each leg of that race throughout the way between dog food and gear and supplies and all that. That all gets shipped out before the race. So during the race, you're carrying about 100 to 200 pounds in your sled, and then you're picking up resupplies at each one of these places along the way. Um, there's a couple mandatory stops where you have to stop in the checkpoint and serve a mandatory rest. There's two eight-hour rests, 
and a 24 hour rest. Um, and we choose where to do those, those stops. And then the rest of the time you're managing the dogs, the way that you train them. So you're running a, maybe a six hour on six hour off schedule or six hour on eight hour or eight hour on six hour off schedule, depending on how you train the dogs. And then just traveling down the trail. The clock starts when you start and it ends when you finish. Um, and so the, the clock is always running and, um, and you're facing challenges and tasks along the way. You're managing yourself, uh, you know, in remote areas, cold conditions. You're also managing the 14 dogs and keeping them happy and healthy. The dogs care and their veterinary needs are the top priority. You can't have dogs added during the race, so you can drop dogs along the way that get sick or injured. So we never want to push them farther than they can go, but you can't add dogs. So if you're not taking care of your dogs, you get down on dogs, you can't finish the race anymore. So dog care is everything. There's veterinarians along the way at each one of those checkpoints that check in on the dogs and help us care for them. Um, and then the guy who manages his dog team the best and makes all the right moves um, gets to the finish line first. It's like a chess game over, over nine days where you're waiting to make the big move. You're holding back when you can hold back. You're pushing forward when you can push forward. And it's all about how your bond and loyalty and connection with your dogs go. You won in eight days. 2022, I did a rod is when you broke through and you won the race. It was eight days and then a little over 14 hours. That's why to listeners who don't know the I did a rod well, this is not a marathon, <laughs> right? A marathon yep. is... is yep. Yep. Barely half a day in length. You know, you go for the morning, you, you can do whatever you want the rest of the day. Um, you right. are managing yourself, you're managing your dogs. What does it feel like when you're out there in the wilderness and it's just you and the dogs and you have the pressure of some of the biggest races that you've ever raced in and that you're dreamed of? Right. I mean, you're basically, it's, 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 you're playing mental games the whole time. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're, get, you're trying to keep your head in the game. You're trying to manage your dogs. You're trying to manage yourself. You're trying to manage those competitors out there. But the, the deal is, is that you've trained all season for this. And so it's all about confidence. It's about knowing that you've put the miles in, knowing that you've got the bond and connection with the dogs so that when a dog has an issue, you know how to deal with that issue. You don't, get oh you don't get freaked out your anxiety doesn't go up higher because of small issues because it's like a domino effect if you start stressing out about each one of those small problems that you're negotiating throughout the race all those add up to a huge amount of problems if you let them bother you so it's it's a it's mental i call it mental warfare in 2022 when i ran the iditarod i was you know after the first half of the race basically it was between me and dallas cv who is the you know, the currently best guy in the business. He's won five Iditarods. He's tied for the most Iditarods with Rick Swenson ever won. Um, he's a young guy. He's grew up with it. He was, you know, on a dog said when he was five years old, he's, a, he's, a, he's, he's just very well prepared and is very diligent in his training. He's a very hard competitor. And, and so you want to, you know, you, your instinct is to focus on what he's doing, think of what he's doing, making sure he's not trying to make a move on you, but really, the only control we have is what we have in front of us. We can control what's happening with our dogs. We can control what we're doing with ourselves. We can't control what's happening with Dallas CB. So that's the mental game is staying focused on your dogs, what you have in control, making the right moves, whether it's going into the storm or whether it's bunkering down, whether it's running that extra hour, whether it's resting that extra hour. You're making these judgment calls throughout the whole time. And like I said, it's just like chess. Like you're making moves now that you're going to see the results of two days later. 
And so you're having to kind of preemptively figure that out. And the only way you do that is by experience, knowing your dog and by being completely focused on your race. Now that last two or 300 miles, then that's when the battle begins. You're trying to set yourself up for that battle at the end. And so you're going, you're, I always say, I got to get 700 miles into the race, running my own race, running my own dog team, not focusing on the competition. And then when you get to that last 300 miles, you got to start thinking about if I want to win this race, I got to know what he's doing, what she's doing, where they're going, what their moves are. And you've hoped that you've made all those right moves leading up to there to be able to make those right calls and then execute because at 700 miles, you're so sleep deprived. You haven't hardly slept in those, in those, you know, five, six days. So you're having to make these calls under duress, under total sleep deprivation where your mind is not functioning necessarily properly. It all falls back to your training at that point. You know, like, were you properly prepared? Because if you're properly prepared, a lot of times you just are doing those things without even thinking about it. You know, by the time I get to the race, I've done so much preparation that like I'm a robot when I get tired. I just feed the dogs. I am able to do those things without even thinking about them. And that's where you have to get to to be successful. And it's a whole, you know, it's 20 years worth of, of, of memory that I'm compiling and experience that I'm compiling in order to, uh, to be successful. I'm a robot, he said. It sounds like the start of a science fiction novel. Yeah, right, right, right. <clears throat> but Brent, Mr. Robot Man, uh, Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto, uh, when we talk about you out there, and, and you said the mental game of it, you call mental warfare and having to stay focused and not letting anxieties pile up, it strikes me that you manage this team. Right? These are not just dogs that are running because they run. Like you, They are right. your team. You bond with them, you train them, and they feed off of you. So yep. how much of your mental game affects the mental game of these dogs? Best question of the whole podcast right there, buddy. Um, it's everything. It's everything. If you lose your mental stability, if you start getting frustrated, if you start getting upset, their mental well-being, their attitude, their energy tanks. Um, they will not perform basically. Um, loyal dogs have a hard time performing if their leader, if their master is not at the top of his game, if he's not making good decisions, if he's stressed out, they read, they can see, you can't fake anything out on the trail. If you have a toothache, like, I mean, this year is a prime example. Like when I did a rod, I, I had to scratch my did a rod. It was the hardest decision I ever made in my entire life. Um, it, when it came to dog mushing and it was, I could no longer care for my team, uh, for, for about a hundred miles. I had an abscess tooth, uh, two really bad tooth issues, infected mouth. I was in so much pain that I was not functioning anymore. I was barely hanging onto the sled to get down the trail and was no longer able to take care of the dogs and their mental ability left their ambition to go was draining quickly and I had to make the call that like they couldn't drag me down the trail in the condition I was in and I had to make the call to the scratch and I mean it's the toughest thing I trained all season long to get to that to that race where I was defending my championship and I got a toothache and it knocked me out of the race um, but I had to come to grips with that mentally and know that like 
I'm doing the best for my team. I had to make the decision for my team that that um, that I just couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't take care of them. I couldn't do them justice. And no matter how much I wanted to win that race and defend my championship, and we were in the lead of the race at the time, like we were 600 miles, 700 miles in, and we were in a good position to go on and, and defend our championship. But I just couldn't do it anymore, and I had to make that call. And it was the first time I had to make that call. I mean, I've made plenty of mistakes in the past where I've – you know, driven the dogs too hard and, you know, like went too far and didn't give them enough rest to where we slowed way down. And I had to just give them more rest and give up the competition. And those were mental mistakes that I made early in the race. And I, you know, I wasn't hurting. I had pushed them and had to give them more rest and therefore lost the race or, or came in when I didn't want to come in and, you know, kept, took more time. This was just purely, you know, I got to make the call that I can't do it anymore. So yeah, it was tough, but you know, that's experience gets you everywhere. And then I knew at that point, there was no other decision to make at that point. And, and um, it was not an easy one. There's no doubt. And now basically since that minute on, now all I'm doing is looking forward to the next, the next start of the next race. So I can get out there and, uh, and uh, you know, redeem. <laughs> I see the giddiness in your face. You look like an addict, which is what you tell me you yeah. are. Yep. The yeah. dog's picking up on your mental game. You you tell me if you're anxious, if you're off your game, if you're having a toothache and in pain, they pick up on that. How do yep. you, from your position in the back, see that and pick up on it? Yep. Yeah, so all season, like I said, I put you know 5,000 miles on these dogs. I know their personalities. I know every one of these dogs like I know no other human. I don't know any other humans as well as I know my dogs, to be honest. And... So I know when they're running properly. I know when their gait is right. I know when their head's in the right game. And as soon as they start getting distracted, they start looking back. The dog that never has a, a, a dangly tug line has a dangly tug line. They're just not going the speed that we usually would be going at the time. And they're just, they just generally don't look like they're having fun. And this is something that they love to do. And so if, if you get to a point where you know, you're giving those negative vibes, they lose that enthusiasm. And when that enthusiasm is gone, that hurts your mental game even more uh, because it's all your responsibility to sort of dig out of that. And then also um, you just, you just, you just aren't, you're just not going to be able to perform. Um, so you have to not let it get there. And if it gets there, you got to find a way out. Um, and so you're constantly dealing with that throughout this race and the sleep deprivation, I, I said it a couple of times, is like one of those things where you're really pushed to the utmost. I mean, I was, you know, sleep deprived and in a blizzard where I couldn't see six inches ahead of me. And, you know, we were, you know, 50 miles from winning the Iditarod and I was faced with like, do I bunker down or do I just walk out into this abyss and make this happen? You know, and um, the dogs were in survival mode and I just made it happen. And um, those are that's the sort of mental stability you have to have is that never give up can do attitude. And if you have that attitude, the dogs are never going to be the ones that shut you down. Um, you're in full control of that. Um, and um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's being pushed to the ultimate and being able to keep a level head, um, both physically and, and mentally. It strikes me how much it's you as the leader of this team. I think a lot of casual fans or people who don't know much about what you do would just say, oh, he's there in the back and they're doing their thing. But if you're yeah. off, they are off. 
And if you're on, totally. they are on. Yep. On the note of them being on, little story time now, if you wouldn't mind. Yep. I'd love to hear a story of a time that you remember feeling just that purest euphoria, that kind of thing you dreamt about when you got the yep. seed planted at age five. I want to go into the wilderness. What's a time yeah. that really sticks out to you with euphoria? Yeah. Um, boy, there's, you know, I, I'll admit there's, there's, there's several, there's, a, I'm basically like, I have to choose because I've, I've had some really, really high points in my career where things all came together. But I think probably the biggest one is when, I mean, it's most recent. I mean, I, like I said, I've had so many, but the most recent one is the Iditarod win. And when, like I was just explaining the storm that we got in, um, you know, it just goes to show the race is never over till it's over. Uh, we went 900 miles, 930 miles to be exact, and are at the last checkpoint. I've got a three-hour lead on Dallas CV at this point. Everyone basically thinks, because there's a mandatory eight-hour at the last checkpoint, and so everyone has to stop for eight hours at that last checkpoint. So if you get there, that's basically the lead that you have for the last 70 miles to the finish line, If as long as you don't mess it up. I got there three hours ahead of Dallas. That's like a foot in. Everyone's just like, oh, yeah. Brent's going to win the Iditarod, but I'm not, I'm not, I like the race. I've had too many close calls. The race is never over for me until I'm at the finish line, you know? So we take off and of course, highest winds ever seen some of the craziest ground blizzards you've ever seen. And, you know, I get out there and get totally blown off the trail and we are, I mean, there's videos on the internet and on my social media where I'm like, you literally can't see six inches ahead of me. The dogs are bunkered down in survival mode. Uh, and I'm laying there and I mean, so many people ask me like, Oh, are you fearing for your life? Like, do you think you're going to freeze to death? And I was like, no, there is one thing that can't happen. Dallas CV cannot go by me while I'm sitting down here in this storm bunkered down. And so it was, it, it was like, I, I just got up and started campusing, going out, tied a rope, used a headlamp on my sled. So I didn't lose it. Cause I would lose it if I walked too far away. And I just started looking for the trail. And it took me an hour and I found the trail and then I had to go back. And this was the time that I was most proud was that I took a dog team that was literally imagine like Arctic explorers, dogs curled up in the tiny little balls, snowed over. They had been there for an hour. I had to convince those dogs. It was a good idea to get up and follow me into this storm and get them back to the trail and try and get to the finish line to win the Iditarod. And did a little convincing, but those dogs, once the light bulb went off, that loyalty, that trust, all of that stuff that I've been building for 20 years to get to this goal to win the Iditarod all came to fruition. Those dogs jumped up. They barked and banged. We ran and got back on the trail and navigated the rest of the storm and went on. And that run, that last 30 miles in on the Iditarod, that was probably it was the most stressful because Dallas was still right back there. He had made up an hour and a half on me. But, you know, all of that training, all of that mental awareness, all of what I learned throughout all the years of, of, of training for this, I had to put to use in that moment in order to win my first Iditarod. And, and we did it. Then we pulled through and, and we made it to the finish line first. And it was not easy. And there, there was nothing easy about any of that race. Um, but that, that moment that we started moving again and I was able to to convince the dogs that this was the right decision in the most perilous conditions you could possibly have. And, um, and we did it and, uh, it was amazing. And to still to this day, it brings a, a huge smile to my face. So, yeah. And 
I see that, and I love thinking <laughs> about you and picturing you convincing them. So explain to me what that looked like. How do you convince them to go in this epic storm? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, like I say, they had been bunkered down. The wind's blowing. We're off the trail maybe a couple hundred yards, and that I had found out by now. And basically, it was, it was you know, most of it is mental. Most of it is me going, I found the trail. If I get these dogs back to the trail, I know that we can get down the trail. I know that we can get there. And giving that aura, that vibe, when I went back there of total confidence, even though I literally, there was no verbal communication because the wind was blowing so hard you could not hear anything. And so there's no verbal communication. You're literally telepathically you know, vibing these dogs, like, guys, we got to do this. You know, we're going to do this. And I just lift everyone up, clean the snow off them, put them in the right direction. A couple times they'd lay back down. Like, I don't think this is a good idea, Dad. Like, why are we doing this? And then, you know, one dog took one dog. And this is when it comes back to that team. Took one dog to be like, okay, let's do this. And he hit the harness. And it kind of jerked everything. Next dog hit the harness. I got up, you know, and then my emotions are going crazy. And then they're feeding off of that. And I get them straightened out. And I get back to the sled. And I'm like, all right, let's go. And they just charge off into the storm, you know. And it was just, you know, it was me believing that we could do it. That's what it was. It was me believing the fact that in those situations, we had all the skills. We had all the ability to, to keep going no matter what the conditions were. And we were at least going to fall off the other side of the mountain before before we gave up and, and, and bunkered down and, and didn't get there. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, I think it was just it's that connection and bond you have with the dogs that just they trusted me. And, um, and, and therefore, they were willing to just do about anything I asked. So the connection you have with those dogs, it's so apparent there, right? Your confidence, yep. your belief, your aura, it rubs off on them. It's no different than the relationship between a coach and a player in, in any other exactly. sport. Yep. I'm curious about this one. In terms of the mental game of these dogs, mm-hmm. what do you see when you know they're at peak performance? What does that look like? For me, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a well-oiled machine. Basically, as a picture, you know, you're, you're looking down your line, everyone's running straight, all the tug lines, the lines that they're hooked to the main line are all straight and tug and tight. Their gates are really smooth and efficient. Um, and they're just smiling, like dog smile. These guys wagging their tails when they're running. They, they might not be totally perfect. They might like dip some snow every now and then, but it's kind of for fun. You can kind of tell when they're just having a good time. And then you really know, I mean, really, when you get to the race, like on a, a more mat, a bigger level, you've trained all season long. And it's really about that confidence again, going into the race. Like I know when I go to that start line every year that I have given 110% to training these dogs. I've given everything I can to doing all that. And so if I know that, if I go into the race, any race that I've won, I've went into the race with those, with that confidence. And I feel like with that, you're manifesting that perfect looking dog team. You're actually, you, you've, you've decided that's going to happen. You put all the time and energy and effort into it. And as long as your head is convinced that you can do it, those pieces fall into place. And that's when you see that perfect dog team. When you know in the back of your head that you left no training run undone, you left no dog behind, you trained every dog to their greatest ability, and now you're looking at it in the first 200 miles of that race, 
And you're like, that's the wave that carries you down the trail throughout that race because you know that you've done everything you can do to get them to the best they can be. What's something that someone who works in a totally different field, even teaching, being a lawyer, a doctor, whatever it is, something that someone else can learn from you and learn from your dogs about yeah. the mental side of things. I mean, it's cliche, but attitude is everything. It's tattooed on the side of my arm. And, um, you know, that goes for everything in life. And uh, if your attitude is strong and positive and you, you're in a, in a good place, then everybody around you is going to be in a big good place, no matter if you're managing a dog team or you're managing a crew of salesmen or you're managing a football team. If your attitude is in the right place, um, your people, your dogs, you, the, 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 the people that are relying on you as a leader are going to um, be way happier and do their job way better, which means the team does their job better in the end as a whole. So that's, you know, that's my, that's the, that's a quote that I live by. It's tattooed on my arm along with pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. Um, those, those two, those two quotes are my two favorites that I feel like, you know, that can be, those can be put into anything in life, you know? And, um, I feel like, uh, you're, it's all about your attitude and whatever you do. Pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. That's wise. Tell me why <laughs> that guides you. That's wise. Yeah. I mean, because you're gonna, I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna have pain. There's no doubt. I mean, I've had so many highs and lows in my career that I can't even go over them with you in a three hour long podcast from concussions during races to driving the dogs too hard and having to scale back and finish 50th instead of third. And, you know, just like bad storms that knocked me out of the runnings and, you know, just ups and downs and highs and lows. And, and, and through all of that, you know, it's, it's all about keeping that attitude and you just, I mean, it's something I you can't explain how many times I've, I've uh, had so many things happen that like, but you keep your attitude and you keep going. You never give up. So Brent, I ask this as a lover of dogs. I grew up with Murray, a beautiful, right. beautiful standard poodle who died last winter and he was amazing. And I'm a total dog and animal lover. So I want you yep. to tell me about the dog on your team right now that is teacher's pet, your favorite. Yeah. And of course, the good thing uh, about dogs is they can't listen to the podcast and get mad at you. <laughs> yeah, right. They might sense it, though. No, yeah, yeah, it's, I, mean, I, always, I always say I can't play favorites because they'll all be they'll be pissed no matter what. But, you know, you just have your innate leaders, your dogs that shine through, the dogs that you bond tighter with. This whole thing started with a dog named Silver for me. And basically the entire kennel is, is uh, descendants of him. And I, I now have his uh, grandkids that are my main leaders. And a dog named Slater was my main leader in the Iditarod. The la and uh, two of my quest wins. Um, just a dog that like, just I had that same connection with his dad. And, you know, that's the best part about this is that I've been breeding these dogs. And I know all of their great grandparents at this point. You know, I, I've, I'm like using all the knowledge I have from training all those dogs and getting to know these dogs and bonding with these dogs. So over the years, I feel like my ability to bond with the dogs is getting better and better and better because I just know their, 
just like person, you know, you know, your brother really well, just because he's your brother. And now I have that same connection with these dogs because I've got the same breeding program over and over. And so Slater is the man. He's a, an amazing dog, loyal to the core, amazing leader, sets the speed really fast. And again, he just has that like nonchalant attitude. Like this is what we do. I enjoy doing this and we're just going to do it to the best of our ability all the time. And that's kind of his but he's really mellow and he's laid back and he doesn't have like that initial, he doesn't have that spastic energy like sled dogs have, you know, he's, he's uh, to the point and gets the job done when it needs to get done. Slater sounds like a badass, but in a great way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and you know, another thing with this connection I should just mention is that my lifestyle is a lot different than a lot of these mushers. My lifestyle is different because um, I live so far out of town and I've been able to create a wilderness lifestyle where I'm living like mushers did 20, 30, 40 years ago, where you're like living and eating and breathing with your dogs. They're the way that I make money. I guide expeditions with them. They're the way that I recreate. They're everything in my life. I live out here away from town, away from city. I don't go to the bar every night. I don't socialize with people, uh, you know, every couple of weeks, maybe, you know, so my entire life has been bonded to these dogs and for these dogs. And I think that has been the biggest part of my success is that I have literally devoted my entire life to this and this, this lifestyle. And so that helps that mental side of it because I'm so much more prepared than a lot of people get the opportunity to be um, because of that. You're training 24, seven, 365 to circle back. Yeah, my lifestyle is one big dog race is basically what it is. Every day I wake up, I have no idea what I am going to do exactly. I have no idea what kind of challenges I'm going to be faced with. I have no idea whether the generator is going to blow up or the well pump's going to blow up or a dog's going to get uh, an injury or get in a porcupine. I mean, I have like a million different options of what could happen in a day. And that's exactly what it's like on, on, on the race course. You're faced with different obstacles every second of the race and you're, you're, you're forced to act quickly and responsibly and knowledgeably with all that database of information you have. And that's tough if you don't do that on a daily basis. If you just go to your job and do your job and go home and eat dinner and go to bed, you're not on your toes all the time. I'm on my toes all the time. Like I, I'm totally as self-sufficient as you get, you know, I'm not, I don't live on a power grid. I don't have any of those services. I'm plowing my own driveway and doing everything on my own, which is five miles long, you know? So it's, it's just a matter of it's, it's all relative, but that is a big aspect. I think that people should know about what I'm doing is that my life has prepared me to, to be, you know, a champion sled dog racer. It's prepared you and it's paid off. Right. In so yep. many ways. I yep. see the joy you have. I see the accolades you've garnered. I mean, clearly yep. the proof is in the the numbers for you and in what yep. it does for you. So uh, I think yep. you're making the five-year-old Brent really happy. Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. And it is true. And it's, passion i think it all boils down to passion and, and you know i think you're to get back to the connected to the mental side of things is like you know if you find your passion your mental strengths are out of control i mean i can i can attest to that like i am i able to accomplish things in dog mushing and survival and wilderness that i could never accomplish sitting in a, in a classroom or sitting in a in a you know in place lecturing to people where a university professor found his passion and he can 
portray the his information to the world better than anybody else can because he's got a passion for that what he's doing and i think that because i found that passion my ability mentally to to do what i am set out to do is is all there and it allows me to perform me and my team to perform at the highest level that we that we do what what, what a great place to close brent i mean thinking about our passions, making me think about my passions and how I can yeah. embrace them more and live them more and be more successful. Uh, it's inspiring what you do, right? I, I've loved looking into you and now finally meeting you and talking to you. And I, I look forward to having you on hopefully future mental games, maybe yeah. after next year's I did a rod when you are not pulling out. And <laughs> that's right. I really thank you for coming on, Brent. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. It's been great. And uh, it's always fun to talk about it. It always spurs up more things that you can think about and uh, to, to make things better. I can tell. I can tell. And I'll see you next time for <laughs> 2.0. All right, Brent. All right. Take it easy. Have a good one. Thanks for having me on. Big thank you to Brent Sass for coming on this week's Mental Game podcast. And I, I told him after we signed off, I felt bad almost for taking him off of his training schedule you know, he said, hey, I got no time for a social life, no time for anything else. He said, no, that's fine. You were my social for the week. Hope I lived up to the hype. I look forward to having him on again after he hopefully wins the Iditarod in 2024. So cool to hear about his journey, how the mental game of a musher at the back of a sled can affect the mental game of a super high-performing dog like Slater, who he told us about, and winning the most famous race in the world in the Iditarod, which he did in 2022. So such a cool podcast with Brent Sass. Thank you to him, and thank you to you for joining. This has been the Mental Game Podcast. As always, appreciate you liking, sharing, subscribing this podcast. If you ever think anyone would be interested, want to share with a friend, a family member, please do so. Sharing is caring and loving. So please, 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 we can subscribe, as always, on Apple and Spotify. All right, I'm Sam Brief, bidding you an adios from my home studio here in Chicago. We'll talk next time on The Mental Game.